This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 26, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Catherine Matisek discusses geoengineering. Okay, say we do get an aerosol sun shield that protects the planet. What happens if it gets turned off? And Augustine Kong joins us to discuss a new way of thinking about nature versus nurture. How do our parents' genes affect us even when we don't inherit them? Now we have Catherine Matisek, an editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about geoengineering. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. Okay, so this week we've got a pile of hypotheticals to mm-hmm. sort out. You know, the question here is not if geoengineering would work to change the climate or if we should do it, but what happens if we do do it and then stop doing it. Okay, let's go through how it works first and then get to the newest what if, Catherine. Okay, so tell us about geoengineering. Uh, Geoengineering is a big word. Mm -hmm. And the reason it is, or it's a big concept, I guess I should say. And the reason it is, is because it primarily covers very large scale systems that are looking to somehow affect the global climate. Now, it's really interesting because the question is, is, you know, where does geoengineering end and other systems of adaptation begin because we're talking about everything from gigantic mirrors that we could place around the planet in order to deflect the sun and try to reduce global warming to devices that capture carbon dioxide in the air and then store it, also seeking to lower the temperature of the planet. So all of these things tend to focus on climate change these days. And the one that we're going to talk about today tries to replicate the effects of Maybe a small volcanic eruption. Oh, yeah. You know, just like Mount Pinatubo, I think, is the one the researchers mentioned. Uh, Because when that volcano erupted back in, I believe it was 1991, the skies were flooded with uh, sulfur dioxide. I think it was like some 20 million tons that went up into the stratosphere. And as a result, the planet cooled by about half a degree Celsius uh, I think for two years. Okay. Well, how could we do that ourselves without the aid of a volcano? 
So there are a number of possibilities, but the big one that has been talked about is actually injecting sunlight reflecting particles called aerosols into the upper atmosphere. And what this would do is it would basically take a lot of that sunlight that's hitting the planet and just bounce it right back out into space. And I just want to back up for a second here because I know I'm steamrolling through yeah, this. Okay. But I want to say that that there's some very interesting things going on. And one is this idea that geoengineering is something that up until recently was kind of a hush-hush topic. Mm. Not a lot of scientists like to discuss it because, A, it's in theory only. It's not something that you can really test. Right. If you test it, you're doing it. Exactly. Because it's at the global scale. Right. And so, so a lot of the a lot of studies of geoengineering so far have focused on models, mm-hmm. but it's been really hard for researchers to find funding to do even that work simply because this hasn't been seen as a, a good, useful global tool up until this point. I think it was back in 2006, you know, there was kind of a um, a key paper that was written that presented this idea as something that might be viable. And that has sort of spurred interest in it along with a lot of the climate change issues that we're seeing today. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what I've seen published has been, if we were to do this, who should be involved? Who Mm -hmm. makes the rules? Because again, it's something that would happen at this scale where it affects everybody on the planet. One one really good way that the researcher on this new paper that we're going to talk about put it is he asks the question, who controls the global thermostat? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) I just want it to be half a degree warmer but only for Washington, D.C. Can that... and, and, and only during the times of the year that you want it to be happening right. to be warmer, exactly. right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can't even figure it out in the office, right? So. Yeah. So, Catherine, let's talk about the individual study that, that was published this week. So what the researchers looked at was a scenario that has actually been discussed. There aren't any, I think, real solid ways of doing this yet. But the idea is that planes would inject, and in this case, about 5 million tons of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere from the year 2020 to the year 2070. And the key here is constant maintenance. These planes would have to go up and periodically re-inject the gases. And so what does that get us in terms of climate change if that happened? So, yeah. So what it gets us is physically it would get us something that people refer to as a solar shield. Okay. It's not going to change what's going on on the planet already mm-hmm. in terms of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right. What it does do is it prevents the planet from warming based on that sunlight that's coming in. Okay. And how much? How much does their model predict that would cool or slow down global warming? In their model, which again runs from the year 2020 to 2070, you're looking at about a quarter of a degree Celsius. Sounds great. Now, let's talk about the other hypothetical that's really important here, which is continuous injection of particles into the stratosphere. What if that doesn't happen? Well, if it doesn't happen, somebody's going to lose a really nice 50-year job Um, (laughs) or lifetime job. But in this case, the researchers thought perhaps 
being informed by politics and what goes on in the world around us, that this kind of massive geoengineering project would need huge buy-in from every single country around the globe. And some of them are going to be affected positively. Some of them are going to be affected negatively. What if setting up this global shield shuts down the monsoon in India, for example? Oh, okay. So first of all, you're going to need to get all these countries to buy in without solid expectations of what will happen as a result. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to need to have all of these countries or their militaries or the U.S. military taking charge of the operations. And then if something happens, you know, we're talking like crazy geopolitical conflict. Maybe we're talking about a landslide or, or a giant flood. A vote where enough countries get together and say – I don't like what's happening. Let's right. stop flying those planes. When people put their collective feet down and say, we don't want this, especially when they're backed by the military, yeah. a lot of times these agreements fall apart. And so what the researchers said was what if we came to a tipping point like that? It were not what if it were not a gradual takedown of the mm -hmm. system, but a sudden collapse? Yeah. And what they did was they looked at something that nobody has ever looked at before, and that is what effect would this have on biodiversity? Mm. How would it affect plants, animals, and other creatures that live in our ecosystems? Okay. Before we get to the animals, let's talk about what their model looked like, what the temperature mm -hmm. change oh, right. would ha – what would happen there if it was suddenly stopped? So if it was suddenly stopped in 2070 – global temperatures would shoot up by nearly three-quarters of a degree in just 10 years. So actually, we're talking about going from a scenario in which we reduced the global temperature by a quarter mm -hmm. of a degree and instead boosted it by three-quarters. So it's one of these like one-step-forward, two-step-back scenario. That would also be over a much shorter period of time. Exactly, yeah. All right, now what about the, what about the creatures? Okay, so – a problem that you are probably aware of and that our audience is probably aware of is that climate change at whatever speed causes the environment to change. That means that animals and plants that used to be okay living at a certain temperature and a certain precipitation level or a certain altitude or a certain altitude, you know, they can't they can't deal with the local climate anymore. They have to move. And right now we're seeing mass migrations happening because of climate change. If climate change were to be sped up as a result of this sudden collapse scenario, these creatures would have to move at much faster paces to get to the environment that was right for them. And so what the researchers in this case did was they looked at I don't even know how many species. Let's just Let's just say lots. Okay. And they discovered that in order to keep up with climate change, species would have to move on the land about four times faster than they have to today. And in the ocean, they need to move six times faster to escape the effects of rapid climate change. And then if they move that fast, because animals can move. Right. Their plants aren't going to be there when they well, get there, right? And, that's, and that was the interesting thing as I looked at this chart that accompanied this story. So it seems like out of all the critters and creatures out there who w might be okay in this yeah. scenario, uh, insects, they would do all right if we don't kill them in other ways. But then the 
other species that would really be affected, as you mentioned, would be plants. Even rodents and primates are very slow moving and slow to adapt. So they probably wouldn't be able to keep up with this kind of, you know, sudden ratcheting up of the temperature. Okay. So here we have a model showing how temperature would change and then a model showing what would happen if we turned off Mm -hmm. that geoengineering and what would happen to animals. What is the takeaway from this? That we would never do it in the first place or that if we did it, we'd have to commit in some irreversible way? At least some of the researchers who wrote this paper, I don't think this was in the paper itself, Mm -hmm. but they are really strong proponents of not Not doing doing anything like this at all because the risk of this sudden crumbling of political will is simply too great. Okay, so some of the people involved in this story, the the scientists don't believe that this is the way government will work, that this will be a thing that could happen. What about politicians, the people who make up the government? Well, it's funny because it seems like even they don't have much faith in themselves uh, in this situation. So for years, lawmakers, at least in the United States, lawmakers on the left are really worried that the idea of doing one of these massive geoengineering projects would distract from a focus on cutting emissions. I think there was talk in the White House back in 2009 uh, about, you know, maybe looking into this kind of research. But as soon as that word got out, people got upset. And so I think that it was discussed a lot less frequently. Now, um, on the right, up until this point, a lot of lawmakers in the U.S. have questioned climate science. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, why would you want to do any sort of big geoengineering project to take care of it? Now, the issue is, as we see more and more results of climate change, you know, as the military is investing in all sorts of adaptation and mitigation techniques, I think that you may see a renewed call for looking into geoengineering as some sort of a silver bullet. Who's to say what side that will come from and who's to say if they will prevail? Uh, But it's certainly something to watch for. All right. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. And what else is on the site this week? We have a story on a new study that is the first in the field experiment to show that cloud seeding, putting particles in clouds to make them rain or snow, actually works. And we've been doing that for a very long time without that evidence. We have been. Um, And another first is the first primate to be cloned. And these are a pair of macaque twins named Zhongzhong and Hua Hua using the same technique that brought us Dolly the sheep. Wow. Okay. How about Science Insider? So on Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on a new index that ranks companies' efforts to fight antimicrobial resistance and another story on a post-coup crackdown that's threatening science in Turkey. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. Stay tuned for Augustine Kong. He writes about the indirect effects of our parents' genes. How do non-inherited genes influence us as we grow up? This week in science, Augustine Kong and colleagues write about non-inherited genes. It turns out that genes that our parents have but that we don't get from them still matter. They're like our environment. 
His team was able to quantify the effect of these uninherited genes or nurturing genes on educational attainment. He's here to talk about this result with me. Um, so, Augustine, this paper gets at the idea that human development, what, what shapes people and other animals, uh, cannot be simply divided into nature and nurture, genes and environment. And your team undertook this experiment to demonstrate the power of that. Um, is that what you were trying to do? Demonstrate the power of, you know, uninherited genes, nurturing genes, alleles that we don't end up getting in our genome? Yes, that is the basic idea that underlying nurturing, there's a genetic component. It's the genes in the parents, they are playing at least two roles because they are playing the nurturing role, but they are also half of them pass on to the offspring, which have this direct genetic effect that we think of as nature. So it's, it's when genes are sort of like doing two things, or actually in some cases, the same genes are doing like three things, four things together, then it makes the thing really interesting, yeah. but also complicated. Yes. Yeah. So what set of people, because you did look at actual human beings in this study, what set of people yes. did you focus on? This is, of course, the key. It's like why we were able to do this study, but other people couldn't. Mm -hmm. So we are studying Icelanders. So Iceland is a very small country. It's only about 330,000 people. Mm -hmm. About one half of the population is already genotyped. Yeah. For this study, the really important thing, which is very difficult to find anywhere else, is if you look at the genotype people, on average, they have one parent also genotype. That is the key, is to have the data not just on the like what we call the proband, basically the person of interest. Yeah. For our study, we need the genotype on the parents. And the Icelandic data give us that. Okay. So here you have parent, one parent out of two, and then a child, and you were able to look at what was inherited from the parent you had genotyped, but then also you could assume that if it wasn't from that parent, that the other parent had given the gene. Exactly. So let's talk about the genes that you studied here. And this isn't a single gene. This is a slew of alleles, different places in the genome that kind of add up to a score for educational attainment. How strong was the indirect, or as you call it sometimes, the nurturing effect of these genes when the child didn't inherit a high score for educational attainment, but one of the parents did have that high level? So now we are measuring the nurturing effect yeah. as a fraction of the direct effect. We are estimating the uh, nurturing effect to be about 30% of the direct effect. Okay. Actually, a little bit more than that. Can you help us make sense of this value? I mean, what does 30% for the nurturing effect mean in this context? So just the nurturing effect itself is, is really not that big compared to the direct effect. Right. But... Now, this is where the magic comes from. The transmitted alleles have the direct effect, but it also have the nurturing effect. So what happens is from 100%, it becomes 130%. Yeah. And then you square it. So then the increase is actually because the magnification compared to no nurturing effect is actually 69%. Wow. What do we do with this information? I mean, is it suggesting something about the power of inheriting a gene as well as one of your parents having that gene? Recognizing the existence of this phenomenon 
have impact on many, many questions, arguably nearly all questions in genetics. Hmm. So in a broad sense, you know, what we think of as two categories, nature and nurture, they need to be revisited with this sense that there's an indirect effect of your parents' genes on you. Even if you don't inherit them, you still need to take them into consideration. So that's that needs to be revisited. What about more practical implications of, you know, this understanding? In the last 10 years, thousands of uh, gene association studies have been performed. So many of these variants have been identified and they have estimated the effects. And people, either explicitly or implicitly, we're assuming that the effect they are estimating is just a direct effect. Mm-hmm. But these results show that in some cases it, it isn't. It is a combination of the two. It sounds like from this discussion that some of the gene association study math needs to be redone. The analysis needs to be redone. You know, and these are studies that, that look for statistical links between alleles, you know, places on the genome and disease or behavior, like the educational attainment score that we're talking about right now. Do we, you know, do we need to revisit these studies, do the math differently? Depends on how you put it, right? Their estimates remain very good. Mm-hmm. It's just that they may have the perfect answer, but the question that they are answering may not be the original question that yeah. they have in mind. Because a lot of the people may implicitly or explicitly think they are estimating the direct effect. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they probably are or very close to that. Right. But they just have to realize that in some other cases, they are also measuring or nurturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You call this a bunch of really interesting things in your paper, like you call it genetic nurture. And, you know, you point out that you now need to think about genes as environment as well. How can people start to take that into consideration in future studies? Once you can see this result, I would argue, right, that environment, if you think of environment as other people, yeah, not just parents, right, just other people that, that are around you, their genes must, in some sense, matter. Once you think about it, it nearly had to be true. Yeah. So in, in some sense, the, the concept is very, very obvious and even trivial, right? But of course, the importance of, of this paper is we actually demonstrate empirically that these effects can be big. So I think people basically just have to face up to that these things, of course, exist. And that actually had to be part of human evolution. Hmm. So interesting. It really is one of the, you know, it's kind of trite at this point to say a paradigm shift, you know? Yes. (laughs) Yes. It is somewhat an an exaggeration, but this is sort of like discovering a new force in physics. It will just take some time to figure out there are many problems that we have not even touched on. It will be affected by this. Augustine, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Augustine Cog and colleagues write about the power of indirect inheritance. In this week's issue of Science, you can find a link to the study at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site at sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. This show is produced by me, Sarah Crespi. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.
This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.